Hi everybody, I'm Tim and welcome to Emmaus Way. It's good to see you this evening on the second Sunday of Easter. I'm going to turn around and see all my buddies back here. It's a big crew. Uh, Miles, looks like you had a big fall. Did you have a big fall? No. No, okay. <laughs> well, as you guys know, these guys lead this portion of our liturgy. And so we are in, I didn't get my hand out, but you guys will... You guys will know how to lead me here. This is our Easter season prayer. Um, And so I think it begins. You guys are the adults, so you know how to follow in here. So let's go. He is risen and indeed. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Thanks, guys. That was fantastic. Oh, there's one more part. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, you guys, you guys carried that. No. All right, let's do it again. But the rotating stool is really good for that activity. You guys all bring your own rotating stool next week for that. So, except for getting the cord kind of tangled, that's probably not the best part. So, someone who knows the details, I didn't mention this last Easter, but I, Shannon delivered like. Like eight or nine days ago, um, what was is, is it Beckett? Is that right? Is it Beckett John? Is that right? And uh, and that was maybe Beckett's maybe nine days old now, maybe it's eight or something. So congratulations to Shannon uh, if we see her. I think there's already a meal thing up for her. So anyway, that was some exciting Easter news for us. Um, Emmaus Way um, is a, a community of people that is excited about living into the gospel, particularly here in our community of Durham and the brighter community of the Triangle. So we are excited always to gather with each other and to hear each other's voices. We're going to be beginning uh, several weeks in the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. It's, it's the lectionary New Testament reading, and we're going to exclusively look at 1 John for about the next six weeks or so. So if you want to read ahead, that w- that's kind of where we'll be. And so we gather each week to hear each other interpret text together, to gather at the table, and to practice and embody in many ways, not just our vision of the kingdom and its future, but its presence in our lives today. So again, it's great to see everybody. Any announcements that we need to throw out there? I have one important Durham Can announcement, uh, and you guys know the, the deal with Durham Can, but uh, Can is one of our, our main missional partnerships. It's a local, grassroots, nonpartisan political organizing community. There's several big things on the works for Durham Can. One is going to be an initiative for uh, 
uh, median and low income housing in Durham. And so we're kind of beginning. I'm going to take a trip to um, Baltimore with the clergy leaders in May to look at a major housing project that the CANS affiliate up in Baltimore did with Johns Hopkins Hospital and the city of Baltimore. And so we're already targeting certain properties that we hope the city will give to us uh, to develop housing. Uh, one will, if you went to Monument of Faith, you went by one of those properties on Monday, Thursday, the big, pro that used to be the projects right off of, of Fayetteville and Umstead, I think, and so we're looking at that property. Another property that we're really interested in, in getting is, you know, the police are moving out of that, that large uh, bil uh, building right across from Duke Memorial, which is just up the street from us. So that's one thing that's up and happening. But this Thursday night at 6 o'clock at Nehemiah Center, most of you guys know where Nehemiah is. It's just right up uh, Mangum Street from where Emmaus Way used to meet. Um, but this is our internal assembly to listen to the results of all of the listening meetings and then make decisions. So all the things that Durham Can works on, it does based on priority decisions that are made earlier. And that's happening this week where we'll literally look at five, six, seven, I, well, I think we have it down to 12 options that over 2,000 people in Durham have listed as things that need to be done. And then we'll select two or three options or programs out of those 10. So if you are interested or have ever been interested in getting involved with Durham Can, this is one of the best times possible because this is the very beginning. What we'll do is we'll, we'll vote on a, a couple of agenda items and then begin forming teams around those. Now, housing is already going to be on the table like what I was just talking about. That's already kind of been selected because it's in progress. But if you're interested in doing that uh, uh, and, and we would, it would be great to have at least like three people from Emmaus Way there on Thursday night. So if you're interested in doing that, talk to me or maybe Josh as well. I'm going to be there but I'm going to be late and so um, it would be great to have three folks there from Emmaus Way. So uh, if you're willing to go or would like to go, let us know so we can do a little bit a nose counting on uh, Monday or Tuesday because for one of the things that I would love for us to do is to be part of the voters this year in terms of kind of choosing those priorities. So a uh, very big night for that. What Any, time, what time is that? It's uh, 6 o'clock to 7.30, maybe 8 o'clock at, uh, at the Nehemiah Center. So, And you know Durham Can is a start on time and end on time kind of thing. So it will start at 6.01 at the latest. So. Anyway, Skylar, it's great to have you here with us again, and we were listening to the podcast uh, last Easter, Mark, just a fantastic job. Uh, the music last Sunday was, I was, it was one of those Sundays where if by some chance you weren't around, listen to the podcast, I was sitting there on the front row kind of going, wow, this is just ridiculously amazing to be part of, I, as a pastor, sometimes you feel like you're in charge of things, but, uh, but I never feel that way in terms of the beauty of the art and the things that we do. I feel like I get to be a participant. It was absolutely fantastic. And a big thanks to everybody who did tons of work in terms of decoration. The food was fantastic. Uh, uh, whoever set the table, the Prosecco and everything, it was just a fantastic evening. So again, uh, Emmaus Way has had some incredible Easter's uh, uh, Last uh, Sunday was one of the most exciting. So thank you, Mark, for your really hard work. And uh, Skylar and Tim and others were there. So anyway, thank you guys so much. Turn it back over to you.
Kind of that last song was fantastic for this conversation we're going to have today about uh, this whole idea of how do we orient our lives? What is the centerpiece that helps us make some of the big decisions and look at some of the most difficult questions? So absolutely perfect. Um, this is our opportunity just to stand and greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. If you're around somebody you don't know, certainly it's a great time to introduce yourself or to grab coffee and some snacks. And then I'll call us back in just a few moments and we'll jump into our conversation on First John tonight. So stand up and greet each other. So tonight is kind of, you know, last week was Easter and, you know, as Kendall was kidding me on the way out the door, she said, all right, dad, good luck at your Super Bowl. Uh, so um, 
Easter, you know, obviously is the, the, the height of the liturgical season, though we're in the season of Easter and we're going to be in Easter for seven weeks. And if you, you know, many of us grew up in non-liturgical church calendar traditions. And so Easter was a one-week thing rather than a, a, a multi-week experience. Uh, so for us, it's seven weeks and we're excited about doing that. But, you know, the second Sunday of Easter after the big Sunday, you got to have a letdown Sunday. You know, you got to mail it in, you know, hopefully Skylar just, you know, if she had normally spent X amount of hours, she spent X divided by two this week prepping, you know, I thought, gosh, whatever I want to do for the dialogue, I'm just going to kind of mail it in this week. It's the Sunday after Easter. Uh, you guys are free to sleep through this one a little bit. We're going to do some really light questions, uh, really kind of stuff that won't matter. Like for example, the two questions that frame our gathering tonight is what is evil? And, uh, and what is love? So uh, nothing that will have any impact on your life whatsoever. Uh, no, actually, these are some really, really big questions. Uh, think about the impact of your answer to the question, what is sin? Or what is evil? What is wrongdoing? I was kidding, Jim. I was, you know, even the most, like, we think about this. Even the most simple questions of morality always bring dialogue to them. Either Jim or I <laughs> was on a plane to, um, to Kenya about 10 years ago, and we were sitting by a, a fellow who had property in Uganda. And, you know, I'm thinking about the old axiom, thou shalt not steal, right? That's an obvious one. Uh, stealing evil, not stealing good. Uh, but one of us was sitting on the plane by a guy who was saying, and I, I think it might have been me, I was asking him, why are you going back to, to Uganda right now? And he said, well, I own a lot of property, uh, multiple acres, maybe would it be like a tea farm or something like that, maybe a tea farm. And he said, you know, there's lots of people encroaching on my land. They've been living there for, you know, eight, nine years. And in Uganda, if you live there on somebody else's land for 10 years and you're not pushed off the land, then you get to keep the land that you're living on. And so I've got to go back and push them off my land so I can maintain my property. Now, in our culture, living on, like if I decide to live in Tyson's backyard, he might call that stealing, <laughs> squatting, something. Uh, I, I know that I'll get a letter from Dave Eford within a week or two saying, uh, please cease and desist and get out of Tyson's backyard. But not in Uganda. There's a different definition of, of uh how property is maintained. So even like a simple question or a simple statement in the Bible like thou shalt not steal is interpreted very differently in multiple cultures. Um, the question of what is evil is, is, is a dynamic question. Uh, think about the question of what is love. You might feel like you could answer that question more quickly. But think about this. When is kindness and goodness an act of codependency? Uh, when can caring become selfish? Uh, when can love become self-serving? I would be willing to bet that you've had an argument with a spouse, partner, parent, or friend uh, in a situation where a person was offering something with uh, loving intent, but you suggested that perhaps they had other motives behind that. Uh, love is a complicated thing. And, and does love ever involve acts that hold other people accountable or even challenge their way of, you know, it's complicated. For example, 
Um, the, um, these, um, what are the, these freedom of religion laws that have been popping up, uh, Indiana, uh, Georgia is, is uh, about to pass one. CNN did an interesting segment, uh, I think two weeks ago, um, about the freedom of religion laws. And, um, uh, they went into, um, uh, they were in a small town in Georgia and, th- and this, for some reason, this small town had five flower shops and they went into the flower shops and almost all of the flower shops had some sort of Christian insignia, crosses, fish, stuff um, in them. And, and all of the owners expressed the, their kind of religious conviction. But CNN asked, would they serve uh, gay or lesbian people? Would they provide flowers for a, a wedding or a commitment ceremony or that sort of thing? And all of the owners said, absolutely not. We would not do that. And so they were making the point that in that small town, there was going to be no service because all of the flower shops were in, in accordance with each other in that type of policy. And so they asked them, they said, well, so you won't do this. But what if someone, and he, the person kind of, the, the CNN reporter is trying to be clever, so he read the Ten Commandments to them. And he said, now if someone came in and they had stolen or somebody had come in and told a lie, or somebody had, had been unfaithful to a relationship or something like that at some point, would, would you serve them? And they said, well, yes, because we're supposed to be loving and forgiving. <laughs> and so he's just kind of sitting there with his palms out. But it just raised the question again is that what is love? What is evil? Uh, we, do we, are there certain things that we decide are wrong? How do we decide they're wrong? Uh, what do we do about them? That's a pretty big uh, decision or conversation in our society of how do you love other people? What does it look like? Uh, what is wrong in our world? And what are the sources of that wrongness? Uh, now, imagine this. If we could come up with a definitive answer about goodness, love, and evil, and I mean in broad terms, how much less complicated would life be if we could do that? Like tonight, and at 6.30, you walked out of here and you said, I know exactly what love is, and I know exactly what evil is. Would life be easier? Nope. It wouldn't be? Why not, Matt? But what if we had the power? Let's have magical powers. We, our agreement forces agreement on the rest of the world. They will all agree with us. Yes. <laughs> what would it look like, Matt? What do you think? I haven't thought about that part. <laughs> it, I think one of our biggest struggles is a lack of consensus on these really, really base ideas. Here's a peek ahead today. I'm going to offer a definition, not mine, but a definition of evil and of sin that I think is an interesting one tonight, one that... Is, uh, comes from a theologian that I think is, is quite powerful. But here's your assignment. As we go through 1 John, these questions of the nature of love, the nature of failure, sin, evil, what it provokes potentially in confession, and then the question of what holds it together. And John is going to unequivocally state that it is the incarnate and and crucified Jesus that holds this whole conversation together. That without that centerpiece, it's very difficult to talk about 
good and evil without that center. But that's your assignment as we spend the next five or six weeks on this is to begin revising and developing your definition of what you think is good and what you think is evil. Um, flip to your first John. I think it's on the back there. Um, let me give us a little bit of an overview of first John before we jump into reading this. But I was certainly going to ask if somebody will read those 12 verses in just a moment. So if you're somebody who likes to read and you want to look ahead, you can look through that and make sure there's no crazy geographical terms or whatever in there. Right, Jenny? <laughs> but uh, so first John, a couple things. One is, one of the things you'll notice about 1 John, and this is actually has made it difficult for me at times to want to read 1 John. You, go, you guys know I'm the type of person who likes to make things a little more complicated or a little more complex. But the language in 1 John is the simplest language in the New Testament. Um, if you wanted to learn biblical Greek... Um, and you took a class at Duke Divinity School or any school that taught uh, Koine Biblical Greek, you are most likely going to be given 1 John as your first months of assignments. You would translate out of 1 John. You would read 1 John just to show that your Greek works because it is the simplest Greek in the whole Bible. Uh, and, And the text, and what that means is the text is filled with lots of simplistic statements that repeat. You're going to see them again and again and again. And there are lots of simple truisms in 1 John. Love is this. Goodness is this. Christ is this. And it comes back to them again and again and again. So um, that's one of the things that we're going to find in the writing of 1 John. And in some ways, it's kind of uh, an oxymoron or an odd thing. It's ironic that some of the most incredible questions of life and theology are asked in a text that writes some of the most simplistic sentences, phrases, and descriptions and responses to those questions. So some people get frustrated by reading 1 John because it seems to make very complicated things reduced to... I'm caught myself kind of saying, yeah, but what about uh, when I'm reading that? And I'll be curious whether you have this reaction or not. Um, the, the issue that is prompting the writing of 1 John is, 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 is division, is there's a sense that in the Christian communities that are being written to, people are leaving and people are asking questions and and making theological statements that are challenging the assumptions of the community. So it's being written into conflict and it's being written specifically into theological conflict. Um, And as I said, there are lots and lots and lots of repetitions. There are three really big themes that come out. And if you want to think about this, um, the the text of 1 John is closer to a a folk song. Uh, We did uh, Joni Mitchell tonight, and I think it would be closer to a Joni Mitchell song than the kind of legalish type of argument that you're used to reading if you've read any of the parts of the New Testament by Paul or others who write these long, long, complex arguments. If this, then that. If that, then this. Blah, 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 blah. This actually has a lot of the repetition that you might expect in a popular folk song where the chorus comes up again and again and again. So you may want to think about this, that you're reading a different genre of writing than maybe what you're used to. But the three 
three big themes that tend to come out again and again and again. In fact, I think all of them are treated three times in this little five-chapter letter. One is a sense of faithfulness to the source. And John is utterly committed to Christ as the source of the questions that he's asking. So one might posit that part of the debate uh, that's going on theologically is the centrality of Jesus in the formation of the church and the locations that are being written to, but faithfulness to an incarnate Savior, meaning a God that came in flesh and was crucified in flesh, is absolutely central, and it's really the, the first theme of, of 1 John. Uh, the second, as I've alluded to, is the idea of love and light. Uh, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to live in the light? And light and darkness was a very common ancient theme of describing the world that they understood was beset by forces of good and forces of evil. So when Christian writers began to write into this world, they often used these very common light and dark themes into their writing. So love and light is the kind of the second theme. And then the third is sin and evil. Uh, the idea of, of darkness and how it impacts the world that we live in. And each of those themes will come up. For example, uh, these are just kind of, I've lifted this from a commentary, but this is just really brief summaries of what First John says about those three scene, themes. Here's what I want you to listen to is the number of repetitions. So on the idea of faithfulness to Christ, um, John talks about continuing and abiding Staying in something 24 times, in the truth 9 times, by means of believing in something 9 more times, confessing 5 times, the Son 22 times, to whom the Father 14 times, and the Spirit 8 times bears witness 12 times. So that whole idea of kind of a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship bearing witness is repeated again and again and again in 1 John. On the issue of love and light, the idea of being born of God ten times, so as to walk five times, in the light six times, to hear 14 times, and to know 40 times God, to keep seven times the commandment 14 times, to love 46 times, to the brothers and sisters 15 times, and thus have life 13 times, which is from the beginning eight times, and finally overcome by the, uh, overcoming the world six times. So you can see these kind of themes are repeated again and again. And on the issue of evil, in contrast to the lie seven times and deceit four times and denying Christ three times or having a false spirit four times and thus being antichrist four times, walking in darkness six times, hating five times, one's own brothers and sisters, but loving the world 23 times, thus being in sin 27 times, which leads to death six times. So... Three songs, three chords, three verses that are again and again and again. And again, these themes you will see one after another. But if we could, let's pause now and let's give it a read. So if somebody uh, jump into uh, John 1, 1 through 2, 2. It's a short chapter. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. For we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, 
and we have seen it and testified to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you, Brian. So do you see, just as quick glance, those really simple statements, simple truisms, kind of repeated again and again and again? Um, look at the first four verses here. This is kind of John's way of, of um, kind of beginning the first theme. And this is where uh, we get this idea that life has been revealed, an eternal life given uh, through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, What we have seen, what we declare to you, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So notice that the the, the focus... The thing that orients our conversation on good and evil is something very, very tangible. Something that we've heard, something that we've seen with our eyes, we've looked and we've touched with our hands uh, concerning the word of life. Now, this is an unfair question. Never assume people have read various, I mean, in our community where we come from such diverse places. But people who've read the Gospel of John, what do you see in that, just even that first verse as a connection to the Gospel of John? beginning was the word yeah and what was the word the word was light and what did it become um when did you say that it became flesh yeah word life flesh so for john the the idea of word and christ is never an abstraction it's not a religious concept it's not an act of wisdom but it is light it is real and it is in flesh And that is the beginning point to any conversation. Just note that this letter begins very much the way the Gospel of John has written. In fact, the assumption is that people who are reading this have certainly are aware of the principles or even the writing that was in the Gospel of John. So, yeah, thank you for for pointing that out. That's a a very clear uh, analogy there. So here we get this first orienting of Christ as the starting place to the conversation of of what is good in the world, what is evil in the world, and how we are to live. Um, So here's a question for you. If you were asked this, and I know this is not a conversation that you have, you really want to have, because there's no way to answer this question without offending someone. But if, again, in Matt's and my fantasy world that we've created, um, if somebody asked you, what is sin? 
What would you, how would you answer that question? Would you give specifics? Would you give a concept? What would you say? Does it exist? Well, I know that the uh, term in Greek, hamartia, is an archery term. It means missing the mark. Okay, so it's, it's like Tiger Woods driving all over Augusta. <laughs> There's a fairway you aim at, and then there are trees all over the place, and that's what he's going to hit, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, in the world we live in now, if you wanted to explain it in terms I want to explain it in, you'd have to start off explaining this idea of telos or purpose. Um, because we live in a world which denies that things have purpose, particularly that people have purpose or telos. Because they're meant to be <coughs> in a particular way. Um, and so um, I would describe sin as when um, People do not fulfill their, their purposes, their telos. So, for instance, one of our purposes, one of the ways God made us to be, is to tell the truth. If we don't tell the truth, then we have uh, failed to. Now, of course, there's some circularity in that because you have to accept what the, the telos is. There's a set of positive statements which say, well, people are meant to be truthful, or good to one another, or loving to one another, or merciful. Um, and so, and evil is a departure from that. So, you know, uh, missing the mark, you then have to define the mark. And that does seem right, though, if you go to the start, um, maybe not define the mark, but describe the mark. You can't really start with <coughs> evil without first having the concept of good. It's a, it's a secondary concept that has to So let's. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. And let's, let's say that John is with you and Brian. Because that's exactly how he started, right? He started with this idea of there, there's some centerpiece, some intent behind all of creation. And you have to acknowledge that before one can have a conversation about goodness and intent of goodness or evil. It, there's something that's center. And I think you and Brian are right on the mark on that, that there, there is something defined. So John doesn't just kind of jump into that conversation like a philo- philosophical conversation in the marketplace. He is going to orient that around the work of God. So I think that's very, very well said. But one evangelical method doesn't start there. They start off telling people their sentence. They don't start off telling people that there's a source of that there's such a thing as good and that they start, they start off telling people they messed up and that they need to say. Well, let's, let's follow that. So what, do, what, is, what are typical constructions, particularly of evil, it, detached from this whole concept of how were you created, what were you intended to be or do, or mercy defined as God's mercifulness. So that's what John would say, is if we're going to talk about mercy, then we've got to talk about God's mercifulness. And then it's a lively conversation. But what are some of the ways that not just Christians, but religious communities, certainly Christians, often kind of divert into conversations about when they talk about sin or evil. What does sin become? I'll give you an example. In my community growing up, sin was profoundly trivial things that you did. Like, I remember the huge scandal in my community when a group of high school women 
crazy. I mean, like, like really silly 16, 17-year-old girls who decided to go to church on Sunday night. I mean, why would they do that in the first place? But they did. But they happened to be wearing shorts. And so their wearing of shorts was a conversation of sin and evil for quite some time in the community, right? Um, I also remember my dad was a, a deacon, and somehow they published the history of the church that I grew up in, and it, like a document about all of its activities, and somebody thought it was a good idea to include acts of discipline throughout the centuries. <laughs> now, yeah, this is rural North Carolina, where everybody comes from three families, right? And they're all kind of intermarried. But, you know, some families are worse than others, you know. And so, you know, that book went out. And I remember it went out like on a Sunday morning at church. But if you scan to the back, you found like the McCarthy's and the Haas's and their great-grandparents were, you know, kicked out for a little moonshining and a couple other stuff. And I remember my dad going out at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon with the other deacons to collect those books <laughs> all over the county, which I don't think they got back more than about a third of them because, I mean, this, is, this was evidence. I mean, I'm looking for evidence on the Nicholson family. I know those folks are crazy, you know. So, um, but in my culture, sin became something highly trivial based on kind of cultural preferences, shorts, what people should wear, what they should do, proper days for fishing, not proper days for fishing, things like that. So that's one religious game that people play on sin and evil is turn it into lots of trivial things that you could presumably create a legal code that everyone would know, like do not fish on Sunday, don't wear shorts at church. Okay, that's one game. What else do we sometimes do with the notion of evil in religious communities? If we're not trivializing it, what else do we do? I feel like everybody always starts with Hitler when they want to talk about absolute evil. That guy is bad. You know, let's all, everybody who thinks Hitler is evil, raise their hands. So if Hitler's bad, what are we? We're kind of good, aren't we? How many of you guys have killed 10 million people in your life? How many of you guys have even talked to 10 million? I mean, you know, I mean, so one game, Brian is exactly right. That's a, a second game, is to turn the conversation about evil into unspeakable acts of horror, right? Because most of us do not wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm up, yeah, a little coffee, what are you up to, honey? I don't know. Unspeakable acts of horror is what I'm going to do today. I'm, you know, it, it might take an hour or two to figure out what that is, but by 11, I'm going to be rolling in horror. Uh, so that's the second thing that we tend to do with evil, is we turn it, we either make it really trivial, or, uh, or we, and usually arbitrarily trivial, or unspeakable acts of horror. What else can we do? Yeah. I don't know this is where you're headed, but... Um, Not sure I'm headed anywhere. Well, <laughs> one of the things we, I think we do is we, we take it wholly out of human agency. And so we would talk about sin as like part of human finitude and frailty. And so we live in a world that is inherently sinful. And so like, you can subscribe things like cancer, illness, um, just destruction in general to like this other thing. Which isn't all bad. Like I like, actually like that some of the theology. But in doing so, it like kind of removes us from any, any agency or participation in that. I think that's a third game that's very possible. Is we just depersonalize evil. 
We never do it to each other. It, it's, it's forces out there. And, you know, for people who think that, for all of you who had someone who's done something really wrong to you, been portrayed, uh, treated horribly, that's kind of difficult to hear because a lot of us, when we think of evil, there is a, uh, there, there's a personification of it at some point. But I think Brett is exactly right. Elizabeth, did you have your hand? Well, on the other side, I think a lot of times religious communities see um, sin or evil as what causes anything bad happens to you. Like, you know, karma, right? You know, if bad stuff happening to me, then I must have done something that's really bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a force. It's something, again, it's not personal. It's not real. It, there's not this personal center to it. Absolutely. I gave you the illustration from the CNN story because it was just really interesting listening to the flower people who could not explain while being LGBTQ was horrible, but greedy was not. You know, often that's another thing that we do is we, we say, okay, let's reduce the possibility of evil to a couple things. And we can focus in on those and we can ignore certain other things. So there's a shell game that, that sometimes creates an arbitrary list. Not necessarily a trivial list, but an arbitrary list that happens. Any other kind of games of evil we play? Mirror Man. Um, another one is that we think that if we didn't, the only time we're sinful is when we have a clear choice between two things. We know one's right and one's wrong. And we choose one that we know is wrong. And anything else doesn't count. Um, so that way, um, with things that we do with mixed motives, you know, we, we just mm-hmm. sweep them all on the carpet any time there. And the things that we do because we're caught up in them um, and don't recognize that our perspective is skewed and is not... Um, is not being what God wants our perspective to be. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there are a lot of those we don't usually notice. We just go along our little route, and it's really convenient when we don't notice the fallout, the negative fallout around us. Notice the balance between Miriam's excellent comment and Elizabeth's excellent comment. There's a bill, sometimes there's a tendency to make evil such an abstraction that's just out there that is detached from us. And then there's another way of making it so incredibly personal that it's just kind of that deep, rugged individualism, particularly of Americans. Me and my Jesus, me and my Bible, me and my gun, me and my dog, me and my whatever, you know, and there's this sense that, you know, I'm constantly making individual choices, but there are really no complex social choices to my life that have something to do with evil in our world. I mean, again, the reason we're making this list is not to make it, we've all fallen prey to it at some point in time. It's not to make fun of that, but just to show that even people who presumably, as Andrew would say, might have a a centerpiece on the conversation of good and evil, have struggled with this idea of what's right, what's wrong, what do we do about it, how does it impact us, and what should we talk 
about. And in our confusion, it's really easy to slip to a couple things. Now, again, I want to remind you is that we're not resolving this tonight. Um, that my offer to you is let's have a conversation over the next six or seven weeks or beyond on what that is and how does our worship of Christ in some ways impact our sense of what is good and evil. I want to give you one definition tonight, and if you'll pardon me, I'm going to do a little bit of reading on this because I think it's worth reading. Um, and somebody is going to know this person, but I did not know this person, so I'm going to pronounce their name wrong. But um, I want to use Dorothy Sole. Does anybody know her? S-O-L-L-E. She is a German, get all the categories, German feminist liberation theologian taught in Germany and in Union Seminary for many, many years. She died about 15 years ago. She was born in Germany in 1929, which meant what? She lived through the war. She lived through the war, and she lived as a Nazi, maybe not a party member, but as she would say, she was formed in a fascist world. And, and she spent as a 16, by 16 is when the war ended for her, but she would have said, I spent the next 20 years of my life trying to unravel the fascist world that I had lived in and what had been done in that world. So her theology and her sense of liberation is rooted in her experiences of some of the most darkest times in our most recent centuries and her life in them. Um, and, um, So she was kind of formed in the horrors and in the residual guilt of Nazism. And so she saw evil, as you'll see, not as trivial, not as a falsehood. um, But she saw that when uh, Goebbels talked the propaganda of the regime, people listened, right? And when Himmler and others constructed the, the extermination of people, people looked the other direction. And, and, and who looked the other direction? People of faith. Now, there are some amazing examples of people who didn't do that. But for the most part, the church that she knew growing up was generally silent or maybe even approving of the most horrible things that she could imagine. So all to say, her theology comes out of that. We've said this many times. Some of our favorite writers like J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and others were deeply, deeply, deeply formed by the war. She was deeply formed by the war as a German and becoming a German theologian. So I want to read to you, um, a, and it, it, this was in text week, but I'll send this to you if you want it. I think it's really good. Um, it's called, it's just a two-page article, and I'm going to read just, oh my goodness. Mimi, could you look and see if my glasses are in, the, in there? I'm going to need that in a big way. Actually, I can make it bigger. I'm okay. Um, but this is called Sin is When Life Freezes. And she's using the kind of metaphor of the ice age. And the creeping change of the freezing of people and their souls as a metaphor toward evil. But uh, listen to this, and you'll hear her critique a lot of religious ways of dealing with sin and evil, the ways that you guys have done this. Let me read a few parts of this. You don't have to be religious or especially sensitive to understand what I'm talking about. Sin is the absence of warm, warmth, love, caring, trust, And it is the most normal thing in the world. 
She tells the story of a woman named uh, Marianne. Not Marianne, but Marianne. Uh, this is her story of Marianne. Marianne is an attractive young woman who owns her own home in the suburb where she lives with her two children. Oh, by the way, I should say this. Um, this was written in 1982. So you will certainly hear a worldview of 1982. There's a, still apartheid in South Africa and a variety of things uh, there. So you'll hear this. Um, Marianne is an attractive, sorry. Uh, she tells me about the gold jewelry her husband gave her for Christmas. The gold comes from South Africa, but she doesn't see the blood on her gold chain. She hardly understands the connection between racism, infant death rates, and exploitation on the one hand, and profit, the low price of gold, and the export of nuclear technology in which her husband is involved on the other hand. Another thing she doesn't yet know is that gold can't keep her warm. For her, sin is a ridiculously old-fashioned word connected with eating too many calories, illegal parking, or uncondoned sexual behavior. You really can't take any of that seriously. Marianne feels guilty about her mother because she doesn't visit her often enough. Occasionally she asks herself if she takes proper care of her children, but sin? Recently she's been depressed a lot without being able to say why. Soon I suspect the emptiness of her life will catch up with her. Then she will either have to change her life or she will go right on living in her modernized dollhouse and denying, repressing, sweeping under a thicker and thicker rug everything that disturbs or challenges her. She will continue to freeze in spite of good intelligence and adequate education and an inboard capacity for compassion and empathy. She will remain underdeveloped rationally, emotionally, socially, and therefore individually as well. She makes reference to her commonly as a colonized being governed by trends in which she has no say but to which she submits. Cuts off from life and she's impoverished. It goes without saying that she's depoliticized as well. When the tradition says that sin is the destruction of our relationship to God, it doesn't mean individual sins, but rather a general condition, the destruction of our capacity for relatedness. Everything seems to us to become shadowy, unimportant. Life loses its taste. We can take it or leave it. Sins means being separated from the ground of life. It means having a disturbed relationship to ourselves, our neighbor, the creation, and the human family. Thanks to her feminine upbringing, Marianne feels like a victim of her environment. She doesn't know her own strengths and capabilities. She's been brainwashed long enough to believe that she can't patch an electric wire, that only young, attractive women have anything to say on television, <coughs> that she doesn't understand anything about business and politics, when I recently asked her to sign the Danish women's petition against the so-called arms race, she gave me the classic argument. It doesn't do any good anyway. Sin means for women more than anyone else not knowing one's strengths and capabilities, never having experienced solidarity, giving oneself credit for nothing, having no self-confidence. It means living without self-determination, without power, without hope. Black theologians define powerlessness as the apathy of those who have given up. The life of most women resembles that of colonized people. Thus, alcoholism is almost a natural result of the destruction of one's relationship to oneself. Marianne's relationship to her neighbor is very reduced. She has to do only with people of her own class. 
She keeps her children, unconsciously of course, away from contact with different people, different experiences, and different cultures. Unrecognized racism has become an integral part of her life. But even her relationship to people of her own class is essentially based on competition and envy. Look at what they can afford, rather than what do they need that for? Why do your friends do better than you in school, rather than what are you really interested in at the moment? Why was your colleague promoted before you, rather than how can we have more time for each other? The assumption that other people must be our enemies rather than our enrichment, our affirmation, our joy is the permanent foundation of our culture, glossed over by nice parties. Um, this theologian uh, skips on, but she, she includes a letter that she read in a public forum um, on human rights. Uh, this is from a father in, um, in um, Indonesia. He's, this father is saying, Every father wants a better life for his children. That's why he becomes a father in the first place. My daughter has become a prostitute. This is the only way she can help the family. She doesn't want to watch the family to starve. A victim of poverty, my God, I am ashamed. But the rich society can only buy our bodies, not our souls. My wife is a symbol of suffering and sacrifice. My God, she works as a maid for $1.60 a month and one meal a day. She has to do all the heavy housework, wash, clean, cook, watch her master's children, all this for a miserable pay. Her master's wife doesn't pay any attention to her work. At the same time, my children need consideration and love too. But circumstances force my wife to neglect her own household, to take care of someone else's household for so little money. Can community grow in such disorder? How can any reasonable person permit this to happen? That my wife is a slave and my daughter is a prostitute. Children of hunger, naked, sick, uneducated. This is her conclusion. My understanding of sin has been shaped by the experiences of my generation. I was born, and this is her, this, the writer speaking, I was born in 1929. I'm the child of fascism, and I spent about 10 years of my young adulthood on the questions. How could it happen? Where were you when the transports were put together? Didn't you smell the gas? Without this background, I would probably still think of sin as a superficial feature of a poor religious socialization. Coming of age means becoming capable of guilt. To understand what sin is, we need a standard by which we can measure false, unconscious, frozen life. So for her, this understanding of sin in the world and evil in the world is this frozenness that destroys our connections. Comments or reactions. What did you hear in what she read? What, did, what do you think she's saying beyond that simple statement that I had? And what are your reactions to it? I lived in Germany for six months. And I got to talk to um, a bunch of Germans about the war and their thoughts. And um, I'm, I'm tempted to... I was tempted to say that sin is a refusal to die a martyr's death for the sake of truth. But I think that only exists during a... A regime like Hitler's, where it's where you'll be killed for saying the truth. That's much simpler than living in economic poverty and and um, not being able to support your family. Um, yeah, I guess I'll just trail off there. So it's complicated, yeah. and where one lives has some impact on that. 
What I read, I mean, summarize it a little bit further to me. What, what, was, what do you think evil and sin is for her? Yeah, so an ignorance of suffering. Yeah, willful ignorance. What else does she not see or the frozen person not see besides suffering? Responsibility, Responsibility. yeah, absolutely. I would also suggest they don't see life. They don't see where life could be. They're asking the wrong question. They ask their kid, not what are you interested in, but why did the Thomas's kids make better grades than you? Living competitively with each other. Yeah, absolutely. What are other things you heard in her definition or your reactions to them? I know that was a mouthful. Tim, sometimes I, I think that the, um, the many stimuli that we have today's world <clears throat> through smartphones and Netflix and um, even email, they're, they're like an anesthetic, they, an anesthesia. I think of this when, when um, air, airlines are showing films that everybody's watching, and I, I think what they're trying to do is to ensure that the passengers don't think about what's going on in, mm-hmm. in the airplane there, and, and they don't become anxious. Sure. And I, 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 when I'm listening to this woman talking, I'm, I'm thinking of this kind of anesthetic of our culture and, and people who just yield to it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't resist it at all, they just yield to it. And they, they do become unfeeling of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so let's follow that. This will be my last question because I want to leave time for confession and absolution on this. But she, I think, is presenting sin as an aesthetic. That 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 keeps us unable to sense goodness and sense our own complicity in evil. And I think that was very difficult for her to see all the good people in the world that she lived up around in Germany who are somehow complicit to the, the horrors that, that were revealed. Um, so think about this. If we were to accept that broad notion of evil and of sin, of being anesthetized against goodness and our complicity in systems that destroy other lives. What does confession become if we reorient our sense of sin and evil away from the trivial, away from the legalistic, away from the overly individualistic, away from the overly abstract, away from kind of the, the ideas of horrible unspeakable acts that surely we're not part of. If we reject that and we see life as something that is bigger, looking for our complicity in the things that are wrong in the world and looking to sources that might provide not only life but resistance to that evil, what does confession become? Let's do this quickly. But what are some things that confession can become with that big definition of evil in hand. Incapacitating. It can feels like it's insurmountable. Confession is. Mm-hmm. And how, how is that, Brett? 
what can I do about it? Okay. And, and like, especially thinking of like, I mean, I, I, I was just thinking about how, like, we benefit from being people of privilege, mm-hmm. like, just because of, we like, we benefit just the way the system is, mm-hmm. um, and so. But I think because confession then requires mm-hmm. some kind of action, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. To doing something about it, or yeah. it's not just saying, oh well, I'm a privileged white person. I feel bad about that, but I can't do anything. Like there's, I don't know, there's something else to move forward, and I don't, mm-hmm. that feels, I don't, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Let me riff off that in conclusion. Uh, Skylar, what is our song of confession tonight? It's uh, Jesus by the Velvet Underground. Jesus by the Velvet Underground. There's a couple of ways to sing that song tonight. You could sing that song as, thank goodness Jesus has got it. Or, it's not that bad. Or, I don't know, uh, I'm not bad, but Will Rodenheiser is. So let's pray for him while we're singing. I mean, there's a million different ways to sing that song, right? Here's some suggestions as we continue this conversation on that which is broken in the world. Is that I think she would say that confession needs to be embodied. It needs to be physical. It, it, it needs to be lived in a way that we understand that, that evil is present physically in the world that we live in. And she would say it needs to be political. That's her greatest critique of Marianne, is she doesn't think she can do anything. She doesn't think that. And what I mean by political is that we need to be people who recognize our power and our ability to reject things that are evil and wrong. And Andrew will get back in as we keep, as the theme plays again, of where he thinks that power, John is, where John thinks the power comes from. Here's another thing is confession, and we do this really well, Mark and Skylar and our musicians often do this, is our songs of absolution are often songs of a counter-narrative, of seeing a world in a different way. If we reject being anesthetized to good and evil, then how might we see the way the world works? And I would also suggest that confession needs to be generous. That it needs to be not laying all of the evil in the world on you, but seeing ourselves as part of a bigger system of that. And seeing ourselves as people who can struggle in small ways. For example, I think the Durham Can meeting to choose priorities for our town is a confessional act. Because you have to name that something's wrong. But then you get to be generous and say, I'm going to do something about that. So these are my firing shots on this, that if we take this broad and vivid definition that, um, that this theologian has given us, that when we confess, we are confessing as people who are living embodied and political lives. We know that there's things that we can do with our bodies. There's things that we can do with our power that matters. We see ourselves constructing a different narrative in the world, different from competition. Different from accumulation, different from judgment, different from trivial statements of distaste in other people. And we also see ourselves as generous people, 
People who understand that none of us work this out perfectly. None of us have a working code of goodness that works in every situation. And if you figure it out, it isn't going to work for somebody across the room over there. There is no way you can construct a template of goodness and dump it on somebody's life and the context of their lives. It is that complicated. So what does that mean? It means that we have to work this stuff out together and work it out in a broader sense of people who are trying to do the good things that are part of the mission and the goodness of God. We can't figure it out alone. We have to hear each other's voices, and we have to understand that that which is broken in the world is partly our responsibility. We're always part of those systems, but we do have the power and agency to respond in those things. We'll continue on this because John is going to continue on this. But if you want to read that article and it's full, email me and I will send it to you. And I hope that maybe in the next several weeks you can have conversations about what really is sin and evil in the world that we live in. Because next week we're going to start talking about what is love. And I'm not sure we can talk about love very well without talking about that which is broken. Skyler, thank you.
As Tam was talking about Dorothy Soleil and this uh, sort of experience of living through the war in Germany, I was thinking of another feminist thinker who was there um, around the same time, a little older, um, but a woman named Hannah Arendt, who some of you may know that name. Um, And after the war, she was sent to Jerusalem to cover the Nuremberg trials, the war crime trials against the Nazis for a number of different papers. And the writing she did as part of that coverage came out as a book a little later called Eichmann in Jerusalem. We actually read that book as part of Pope Group maybe, what, three years ago or something like that? And in the book, she makes this point. uh, She sort of coins this term, which she says, the banality of evil. And what she discovered in covering the Nuremberg trials and living through the war in Germany is that evil didn't always consist in these massive unspeakable acts of horror that we talked about, that it consisted in these incredibly mundane, sometimes banal gestures in which everyone was able to excuse themselves from having been a part of it. Well, I didn't really do anything. All I did was make sure the trains ran on time. That's all I did. Well, I didn't do anything. All I did was make sure that, you know, I checked on my neighbors and maybe reported a few of them so I could stay in line. You know, I, I, I didn't really commit these unspeakable acts of horror and what she says is this, these sort of mundane, banal acts add up to what we see as this horribly evil event. Now, to me, that's a pretty discouraging and somewhat terrifying idea, <laughs> that all of these individual acts that we do are contributing um, to such a large-scale large, large scale, uh, happening. But I think maybe the flip side of that, and something that I was thinking about when you are talking, is that if evil is banal, that maybe good is also. <laughs> Maybe good consists in these incredibly mundane things that we do for each other. The act of holding on to a loved one or a friend, the act of comforting and consoling someone, the act of changing the way that you speak or the way that you interact with someone in order to make them feel welcomed and included. 
These are incredibly banal things, and yet I think together they add up to this unbelievable gesture of good that we keep calling here the kingdom of God. This table that's behind us is, I think, something that is at once both a banal gesture, something that we do every week, something that we do every day, which is break bread. And yet, by doing this, we participate in the great reality that's breaking into this world that's the kingdom of God. So I ask that you join us at the table, that you break bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you, that you pour wine and juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. Please, everyone come. We have an open table.